Our reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So you heard just a few moments ago the passage from which I am going to take my thoughts. But I'm going to approach it in a way that might be a little different from what you might expect. What I'm going to suggest is that this passage is full of irony, curiosity, curious, and even what I'll just boldly call oddity. It's just odd. Here's why. Oddity number one. The epistle of Philippians is routinely referred to as the epistle of joy. And it is that more than any other epistle Paul wrote. One of the most uh, famous sections of Philippians comes in the next chapter, chapter four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all people for the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which overarches or transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right in the middle of the epistle of joy, Paul uses some of the harshest language he used anywhere. Chapter three. You just read it. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evildoers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. He's talking about people who have come to that particular community and demanded that those who have recently followed Jesus also need to conform to certain aspects of the Mosaic law. It's interesting that he gets so harsh with those who do that. Watch out for the dogs. 
uh, that was not the favorite animal of a first century person, Jew or Gentile. As a matter of fact, nobody ever heard of a pet dog, okay? Dogs were ravenous, kind of like wolves, coyotes in the street. They were carnivores. They would eat anything, including garbage. They were carriers of diseases. People shunned them and sometimes got rabies from them. They would attack people. Beware of the dogs, said Paul. And that routinely was a reference to the Gentiles. This time he's talking about people who are Jews that follow the law of God. Second thing that is in this first oddity, this epistle of joy, watch out for those evildoers. That's strong language. Watch out for those who are not righteous but evil. Even though the people that they're supposed to watch out for are trying to implement righteousness, watch out for the evildoers. Routinely, when evildoers is used in the scripture, it relates not just to things you do, but it relates to the evil one. To put it another way, watch out for those people who are tools of Satan. That's some harsh language. Third bit of harsh language that I find to be odd in the middle of this epistle of joy is watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. Really strong language for the disfigurement of the body. Something that the Jewish law always spoke against. It's kind of like Living in a college town, you'll understand this. It's kind of like Paul is saying, this is an act of hazing, right? We always hear those stories about fraternities that go overboard in terms of their acts of hazing. Paul is basically saying, you want to be a part of the club and they're requiring you to go through circumcision as a form of hazing to be in. Don't do it. They're just disfiguring the body. Okay, so that's oddity number one. That kind of language in the middle of the epistle of joy. Oddity number two. This is really odd. They weren't doing anything wrong. I mean, the people that Paul was accusing. They were simply saying, follow the law of Moses. It was one of their most important laws for their own identity. It was a law that runs throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it had profound implications. To put it another way, it was a righteous law. As a matter of fact, Paul, who's saying, watch out for the mutilators of the flesh who are demanding circumcision of you so that you can be saved. It's that same Paul. Get this, that same Paul who brings Timothy, a Gentile, onto a missionary journey to spread the good news concerning Jesus Christ to the other parts of the Roman Empire. And before he allows him to go, at 33 years of age, he says, Timothy, you need to be circumcised. Really? Mutilators of the flesh? Isn't that odd? Later, he did not require Titus to be circumcised. 
and what we know of Paul, he was a very observant Jew, and he definitely was circumcised. He brags about it for good reason later. I think it's just odd. Don't you? So what's the problem? If Paul demanded circumcision of Timothy, but not of Titus, if Paul was circumcised and proud of it, then what's he so upset about? What's the problem? Here's the problem. They took what was good and used it improperly. They took what was good and they used it improperly. Paul was not against the Mosaic law. He was not against circumcision. Now, let me put out a point of clarification that might sound a little harsh and certainly will divide different people in terms of their understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, C.S. Lewis is not the only person I ever quote in my sermons. You know that, right? So, And I'm not going to do it again. One of the people I quote very often, sometimes without you even knowing it, is William Barclay. A wonderful exegete of the New Testament. One of my favorite sets of commentaries. William Barclay wrote on the entire New Testament. I appreciate him deeply. But when it comes to this passage, he got it wrong. You know why? Because he claims these are his words. Paul, in this passage, shows utter disgust for the law. Wrong. Paul does not show utter disgust for the law. The law. William Barclay, the great scholar, is not the only one who makes such a mistake. There are really popular American preachers who seem to be preaching the same thing, that Paul dismisses the law and finds it disgusting. So I'll just up the ante a little bit and get real critical. For those of you who know Andy Stanley, and I know most of you do, If I understand him correctly, in a book that he wrote, he seems to be saying exactly that. And his teaching is wrong. Why? Because Paul said routinely that the law was righteous and holy and good. The problem was not the law. The problem was us. In other words... What Paul is saying is that these people are using what is righteous and holy and good improperly. Sometimes I do a little uh, dialogue with my students in my sport history class, and I ask them about rules in terms of sports. You know, lines, foul balls, all those kinds of things, basketball, football, baseball. We talk about the rules, and I say, what rule would you eliminate? What rule would you add? What? We have this conversation, and then I always say, you know, there's actually nothing wrong with the rules. Well, everybody thinks there's something wrong with the rules, okay? 
If you're a real sport fanatic, you always want to change something. My point is there's nothing really anything wrong with the rules. The rules actually create parameters for the game. They make the game beautiful. They make the game exciting. They make the game stay in bounds. Okay, for instance, this is getting way off the field, but I'm going to do it anyway. On Sunday, NFL be played all over the country. And um, when some wide receiver is going out for a pass, when he comes to the line, let's call this the line where the carpet is, and he's trying to receive a pass, he does his best to keep both feet in before he catches the ball. It's a rule. On Saturday, college football was played all over the country. And wide receivers were reaching out to catch a pass. And all they did was to make sure that just one toe was inside the line. I'm not going to suggest that college football is worse or that the NFL is better in a lot of ways. But I will say this. The rule of two toes in makes the game even more exciting and you might say better. So Paul is not saying the law is stupid. Paul is saying the law is righteous and holy and good. It has a purpose. But don't misuse it. At the very beginning, long before Paul uttered a word, the Old Testament had argued something like this. As far back as the book of Deuteronomy, the point, says the book of Deuteronomy, of circumcision is not about the flesh. It's about the circumcision of the heart. God says, I established all these laws to point to something else. Read the book of Hebrews. Everything about the law points to Jesus. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's something wrong with our application of the law. So oddity number three. It's what I call really funky accounting. Oddity number three. Paul says, everything that I count for righteousness, I'm kicking to the curb. And then he declares what his righteousness is. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Perfect timing. Says I was from the tribe of Benjamin. That's the tribe that the first king came from, Saul. The second king, David. He said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm not just born Jewish. I'm culturally Jewish. I am Jewish through and through. He said, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. By the way, not a criticism of Pharisees. Because not all Pharisees were the kind of Pharisees that Jesus condemned. It was about the individual Pharisees and where they had gone astray. I followed the law, said Paul. Oh, did you notice he didn't apologize for it? And then Paul says, add up all those things. They are of no credit. I'm not an accountant. I know a few of you are. But if you had a ledger and you had a whole column of credits on one side, and then somebody came along and said, why don't you just throw all those out? what would your response be? Are you crazy? 
First of all, it's just bad accounting. Second of all, I'm a loser if I do that. In effect, Paul's calculus was to throw out all the credits and just put one in the column, knowing Jesus Christ. That's it. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of parallels to this in the New Testament. In Jesus' parables, you can find them. The pearl of great price, just give up everything to find it. The woman and the lost coin, the sheep, out of a fold of 100 The shepherd goes to find just one lost sheep and leaves the others behind. That's what you might call divine calculus. So Paul, in effect, is saying this. Here's the divine calculus. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Why? Because Jesus did it all. He satisfied all the law on your behalf. And all he asks you to do is to follow him. You know, the greatest of love stories, they all have uh, that common theme. The person who's love, willing to give up anything, everything, to be with the one they love. Paul says, I give it all up to know Jesus. Fourth oddity, and this is the last one, is the pathway to joy, according to this epistle of joy, the pathway to Jesus, according to Paul, is through suffering. Suffering? Who wants to sign up for that? Why is it the pathway to joy? Well, because suffering is necessary for growth. We know that in our real life. We stretch ourselves. We make our muscles sore in order to be better. Why is suffering the pathway to joy? Because death is necessary for resurrection. You're not going to rise again unless you die first. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to fellowship in his sufferings. I want to experience death so that I can experience resurrection. Why is suffering the pathway to joy? Because if we love the other, we will do anything to be one with them including entering into their life, even their suffering. We know that's true. That's what Paul's appeal is all about. I want to know Christ. Fellowship of his suffering, a death like his, so I can attain to the resurrection from the dead. We have mentioned a couple of times, I promise this week is, well, I shouldn't promise anything. The last week, I'll refer to it. The book, Gentle and Lowly, it's free. There's a bunch of them left. I'd be happy if there's none left at the end of the day. In Gentle and Lowly, the author reminds us of a lot of things concerning Jesus. One of the things he reminds us of early in the book is this. 
that Jesus loves to forgive. As a matter of fact, he says, that's when you're closest to his heart. When you're asking for forgiveness. Man, that's powerful. Why? Because if you're like me, you sin and you go back and confess and you must think to yourself sometimes, surely don't you think this? God is saying, oh no, it's him again. (laughs) Don't you feel foolish? That's when you're closest to Jesus because he loves to forgive. Second thing about Jesus and knowing him as he sympathizes with our weaknesses, that's why he came and suffered and died and went through every temptation that we went through. He's also our advocate. He's the one who defends us against the accuser, which is Satan and sin. No, you can't have him. You can't have her. He or she is mine. Knowing Jesus means you realize you realize he will never cast you out. To know Jesus is to know that you are loved by someone who will never cast you out. Why? Because casting you out is contrary to his mission. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. That's what he's about. He came to redeem. He came to love. He came to take the penalty for our sins. His mission won't let him cast us out. His heart won't let him cast us out. The other thing you know about Jesus when you study him or when you come to him, is you realize Jesus is all about relationships. Think of the gospels and Jesus with the disciples. He was always with them. He wasn't just teaching from afar. He wasn't just high and mighty. He was with them always in every part of their life. He was in relationship with them. Also remember concerning Jesus that he was in relationship with people who were not his disciples. He reached down and he walked with people who were the outcasts, the lepers, the sinners, and he got criticized for it because Jesus was about relationships. I heard a story of a young man who was in college. And while in college, he was involved in some sort of student work day in South Florida, blazing hot. Closest thing to hell you'll find is South Florida, I'm telling you. I grew up there. He's digging a ditch in the South Florida heat. And he said, as I was digging the ditch, all of a sudden, somebody jumped down in the ditch with me with a shovel and started digging with me. He said he was a faculty member an important faculty member at the school. He said as he dug, he just talked to me. Talked to me about life. He knew I was going through some things and and he just talked and talked with me and then 
He jumped out of the hole. He said, I, re- I recognized he, he wasn't in there to help me dig, although he was. He was in there to be with me, to be in relationship with me. Jesus is all about relationship, if you know him. Jesus is pure love, if you know him. That's why he died. That's why he invites us to follow him. That's why he says to people who are struggling, look, my yoke is easy. The thing that goes on the top of cattle and my burden, it's light. Take my yoke upon you, my, my burden. It's easy. It's light. Learn of me. Because I love you. I heard another story one time of a, a young man who grew up in a pretty strict environment. And in that place, they would routinely have these things called revivals or camp meetings. And guest speakers would come. He said on one occasion, guest speaker came. And he said, all of us tough guys folded our arms and sat at the back of the church or whatever it was and just dug in. We'd heard it before. We knew what was coming. Another hellfire and brimstone sermon. We could take it. And he said this, this preacher got up and preached about the love of God and Christ. That's all he talked about. And he said all that stuff, guys, found that, the, that our hearts were melting. Jesus is about relationships, about forgiveness. Jesus is all about love. By the way, both of those stories are stories about my father. He was the faculty member. He was the preacher. Yeah, you know, I grew up in a really strict, legalistic community. But in the middle of all of that, my dad communicated continuously the love of Jesus Christ when he preached, when he taught, and how he lived. I, I, I'm sure that I have him to thank for my faith. I'm sure I have him to thank for me even being here because I heard a lot of other messages. There were condemnation and judgment, but I consistently heard the love of Jesus from my dad. That's why Paul considered everything else rubbish because he heard that message. He encountered Jesus and he thought, Nothing else is worth this. Not the love of God through Jesus Christ. That's the Lord I hope you know, right? The one who is the love of Jesus, Lord. If you don't know that Lord, I, I promise you, he's standing there waiting. 
He's just standing there waiting with arms open, an invitation, come and know me. I love you. I wish that today someone would accept the invitation. Say, yeah, I, I can't resist. You, you can do it in the quiet of your heart. You can do it by talking to a friend. You can do it by talking to me. It would delight me. But the last thing I want to say is I think there's probably some of you here who once knew that Jesus. You saw him for what he was. And then over the years, after following him for a long time, you've just become so nose to the grindstone, so much following the law, that you've drifted away from the pure love of Jesus. If that's, if that's where you are, come back. Just see it in all its divine simplicity and come back and renew your first love because that's the heart of God and it's life eternal. Let's pray. Lord, you're a good God that gives us all things. We don't want to suggest that you didn't give us the law and we don't want to diminish it. But we do want to recognize that you gave us the law so that we could see you. You gave us the law for uh, our own benefit, and it's good for us now. But you also gave us the law to show us that there was no possibility of measuring up. And then that's why you gave us Jesus. So we thank you for the coming of Jesus that he took our place. And we thank you for Paul's reminder that we should just erase everything else in the ledger and just seek Jesus, to know him, to know him for who he is, to know him as the one who forgives, the one who sympathizes with our weakness, the one who is our advocate, the one who will never cast us out, the one who invites us into relationship, the one who loves us with a love that's inexplicable. Lord, for maybe that one who's never um, taken that step to accept the invitation, we pray that today will be that day. For those of us who accepted the invitation long ago but got bogged down in the details and the law became more important to us than love, awaken our hearts, remind us of our first love, and may we return to it. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.